welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and uh, my guest this week is Kadri Vlik, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome, Kadri. It's great to have you on the podcast again. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, uh, it's, it's very, very good to, to be speaking with you again. Um, this is called The Week Ahead in Russia. But first, I'd like to go back to last week uh, and the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, the last Soviet leader, uh, who passed away on August 30th at the age of 91. Uh, obviously, we could talk about Gorbachev for, for many hours, uh, but we need to limit it to a few minutes. So I want to focus... Uh, on the way uh, that Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin kind of handled this uh, very momentous event. Um, the government declined to announce a state funeral, uh, and Putin uh, skipped the funeral, uh, which was held very close to the Kremlin. Uh, he uh, had his spokesman say he was too busy. Uh, he sent a condolence telegram uh, that was published on the Kremlin website. It was very carefully worded, I would say. No actual criticism um, of Gorbachev, but also no praise for any, anything specific uh, that Gorbachev did while in office. It, it was mostly focusing on kind of what he did after humanitarian efforts um, and, and actual condolences to his relatives. Um, Putin uh, then laid flowers at Gorbachev's uh, open uh, casket a day before the public viewing, um, which, uh, as the Associated Press put it, was over was shadowed by the awareness that the openness Gorbachev championed had has been stifled under Putin. So you know that's obviously a reference to Gorbachev's Glasnost program and the the, the openness that really um, set all the changes in motion um, and eventually. Uh, I would say hastened the collapse of the of the Soviet Union um, as um, the Soviet government, communist government, was having trouble bearing up, both under economic uh, pressure and, and also just the just the the, um, the the openness that was that was being uh, championed. So, um, and then another thing that happened: the, the funeral, uh, Gorbachev's funeral, was attended by president uh, by former president Dmitry Medvedev. Um, and he, but uh, he used the occasion for kind of his latest rant um, against the West, uh, kind of accusing the West of being out to uh, dismantle um, Russia uh, and warning, issuing the latest in a series of warnings from Medvedev, who's become very um, uh, kind of outspoken in a poisonous way, um, uh, warning about nuclear, uh, that, that Russia has nuclear weapons. Um, Kadri, uh, what was your impression or, or your takeaway from the Kremlin's approach to this uh, to, to Gorbachev's death and and uh, um, and the country's uh, saying farewell to him? Uh, to be honest, um, I think it was as expected. I mean, at least as I expected. Uh, Putin's reaction didn't surprise me at all. Uh, my own thinking is that Putin has a conflicting attitude towards Gorbachev. 
I think he respects him for trying to keep the Soviet Union together because, you know, dismantling the country was never the aim of, of Gorbachev. It happened as a result of his policies, but, but he tried to keep it together. And that is something that I guess Putin appreciates while, of course, he probably sees Gorbachev as indecisive and too weak in how he approached the problem. Uh, you know, had Putin been in his role, uh, we surely would have seen uh, crackdowns and repressions uh, that would be of different order of magnitude. Uh, any crackdowns Gorbachev attempted, uh, he felt later bad about, and he quickly reversed course. Uh, Putin probably would have op- <clears throat> would have done something completely different in that role. But anyway, I it was actually Putin who sort of somewhat rehabilitated Gorbachev in official Russia. Because if you remember, Yeltsin's attitude towards Gorbachev was really very jealous and petty. Uh, it, it was bordering tasteful. Uh, when Gorbachev came to power, uh, sorry, when Putin came to power, Gorbachev was again invited to state occasions and he was shown some respect. Um, that, that, I think, was, was good call by Putin. So Putin's reaction, I think, sort of, fits into what I imagine his attitude should be. Now, Medvedev, I'm not sure, is, is, is even worth a comment. He, he uses every occasion these days to rent. Uh, where does this rent come from or what's its aim is, is anyone's guess. Um, I can I cannot give a sensible interpretation of of that. Yeah, maybe he's looking. Maybe he hopes to get a meaningful boast. Maybe whatever. I do not know. But it was interesting also to see so many people queuing to say goodbye to Gorbachev. That came as a surprise to many. Um, not to be honest to me, because I remember. How many people queued to say goodbye to Raisa Gorbacheva, who died um, long ago? It was still Yeltsin's time. And that was the only occasion when Yeltsin could get beyond that petty, jealous attitude. And then he sent the state plane to pick up the coffin from, of Raisa from Germany, where she had been receiving treatment, which in the end did not work. And I remember there was a ceremony to say goodbye to Raisa somewhere on Gogolevsky Boulevard in Moscow. And there was a huge line of people. So I think something they admired about this couple, uh, Gorbachev and and Raisa, uh, was evident already back then. Maybe raise the human qualities more than political, or it is hard to say. But in any case, I, I was not surprised to see so many people uh, coming to say goodbye. Um, I wish I could have been there myself. I, I would have wanted to say my own goodbye. And I would have wanted to feel the atmosphere uh, in the line. I mean, was that some kind of political statement turning up there? Or was it not? Or what, what was the actual feeling 
from distance it's really hard to tell but i i think it was an important moment in the life of Moscovites with autumn yes uh that those are good interesting points uh, i agree and I, I mean i feel like um it would be great to be able to to um to take in the atmosphere of of, of what things you know what things were like and how how um you know how the the crowd who was a crowd of people uh, lining up to pay their last respects to Gorbachev, uh, you know, we're, we're viewing it. Um, you know, we, we actually had um, RFE had had uh, some some comments from from people in the line. You know, it was quite uh, quite illuminating. Um, uh, and also, you mentioned interest uh, just the the kind of the real kind of rivalry was between Yeltsin and Gorbachev. I mean, they were sort of going back to, uh, you know, to the eighties. Um, they were kind of competing with each other. Uh, and, and I think you know, that obviously affected their relationship after, after, uh, Yeltsin came to power. Um, and you mentioned this kind of intriguing, you mentioned how, how Putin might have reacted to, um, the, Essentially, as the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union's collapse, and I, I mean that—that's a um, interesting thing to think about. Uh, in some ways, you know, he's—he's—he's he's, he's its product, so it's hard to understand, you know, how he might have, you know, what um, he wasn't formed at the time, I guess, as a politician. So it, it's a little hard to know how he would have reacted at the time. But obviously, he's, you know, made statements about how he. Uh, thinks it was a catastrophe in a certain way, and and he later said, I think a few years ago, that he would. That's the 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 event that he would sort of uh, uh, reverse if he could. Um, so um, and now, of course, he is trying to um, reverse some of the some of the effects of the the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and the end of the Cold War. Uh, these things that that Gorbachev had such a a, a huge role in uh, in making happen. Um, you know, obviously the, the war on, on Ukraine is uh, you know an attempt to um, to take control of Ukraine. So um, to some degree, he's you know he, he's not trying to recreate the Soviet Union, but he he is trying to turn back some of the uh, some of the events uh, linked with its its collapse. Now, um, the last time, and we'll sort of use that, I guess, as a segue. Uh, the last time you you appeared on this podcast was in June, uh, before the summer began. Now it's Labor Day in the United States, uh, symbolically the end of summer, um, and there are signs that a kind of a crunch time is coming uh, this fall and winter, uh, in terms of Western and particularly European or EU support for Ukraine uh, amid you know this war, and perhaps also for efforts. Um, a crunch time for for efforts in the West to dramatically reduce reliance on um, Russian energy supplies. Now, energy prices have been rising in Europe. On Friday, European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen uh, called for a price cap on Russian gas deliveries by pipeline. And on Saturday, Gazprom said it was suspending deliveries um, via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline indefinitely. The Russian gas company cited a technical reason, but that was widely dismissed in the West, uh, where Moscow is seen as being increasingly open about using its energy wealth as a weapon 
Um, here in Prague yesterday, tens of thousands of people protested against the government and also against the EU and NATO, uh, demanding that the, the Czech government do more to help with rising energy bills. Um, and organizers called for direct, con direct contracts with energy suppliers, including Russia. Now, these organizers were mainly far-right groups and the communists. They're not mainstream parties, really, but this was a large protest. Uh, Bloomberg News called it the largest manifestation of public discontent over the worst cost-of-living crisis in three decades in the Czech Republic. Um, that's here uh, in Prague. In Germany on Sunday, Chancellor Olaf Scholz said the government will earmark 1.5 billion euros to help consumers cope with rising energy costs. And Germany's president told um, the visiting Ukrainian prime minister, Denis Smichal, that Germany will, quote, continue to stand reliably by Ukraine's side, unquote. And now uh, Smichal is in Brussels today, so there's more talk of support and solidarity. Kadri, um, as Europe uh, heads toward autumn and winter, how do you see things shaping up in terms of a united front on support for Ukraine? Um, I think it is pretty united, um, to be honest. Um, even surprisingly so. I am, um, to give you a small heads up as concerns my own work, we call uh, EU-Russia power audit. Um, and basically, that means that I have sent questions to all member states asking how they understand where this war is going and uh, what does that mean for Europe. Uh, I get replies from ECFR national researchers in all member states and they reply to me based on... Uh, uh, the interviews they conduct with their sources in the government and in among the political class uh, in a wider sense. And I don't have yet all replies in, but a uh, majority have arrived. And I do not see European resolve weakening at all. We ask about uh, sanctions towards Russia. Should Europe uh, weaken them? No one says it should be weakened. Uh, rather vice versa. Some countries say that sanctions are not enough yet, uh, they should be toughened. Many others say that sanctions are um, robust and sustainable, as they should be. Um, some point out that Putin's behavior is past the point where it could be uh, influenced with economic calculations. But also that for them does not mean that sanctions should be given up. Rather, it means that Europe is off for a long standoff vis-a-vis -vis Russia uh, and that should be figured in. And I think that actually European governments are figuring that in. Um, the winter will be harsh, but preparations for that are being made, uh, both when it comes to gas market, as well as mitigating effects to populations or employers, companies. Um, so um, I think if Moscow really thought that stopping deliveries through Nord Stream 1 will make Europe to reconsider the sanctions, I mean, that seems to be today's message from Moscow, and that really has shaken up energy markets and uh, Euro has um, dropped vis-a-vis -vis dollar, etc. 
you know, we, we can see effects on all front pages of economic papers, uh, economic news, but I don't think that will cause a policy change, rather vice versa. I think um, Europe will be more determined to work on its own resilience uh, and, and, and get through that winter. I, I don't see anyone really going soft and suggesting that, okay, let's drop the sanctions uh, for the sake of getting our gas from Russia. Uh, and Russia itself, through its sort of brazen policy, has, has made that nearly impossible. Um, Russia has shown that it's not playing in good faith. Uh, nowhere, really. Uh, when it comes to the war, when it comes to trade relations. Uh, and I, I don't imagine Europe giving in like that. Um, so, yeah, um, I do worry about the coming winter, uh, what, what it will mean for um, economic situation all over Europe. But I... I do not see that causing a reverse in Europe's policies vis-à-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine right now. And even if we assume that economic hardship might make, might make a few governments collapse and, and different governments, most often Russia, will replace Rose, I don't see that happening in uh, countries like Germany and France. And, and that actually will mean that uh, the EU's overall position will not be dramatically changed by by any government changes in in smaller countries. So, yeah, I don't think I don't think collapse of unity and and collapse of policies is in the cards right now. Thanks. I mean, it sounds like sort of another. I mean, I, I, it does sound like kind of Russia's behavior has kind of taken it past the point of no return in terms of, you know, there are very few people who who think, you know, it, it would be possible to go back to kind of business as usual. So where do you go from there? And I wonder whether kind of Russia's at least aggression or perceived aggression, on, you know, on the energy in the energy markets and, and, and elsewhere um, is is having a similar or may have a similar effect you know on europe <coughs> excuse me and the west as 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 the invasion has had on ukraine i mean obviously not as dramatic but in terms of well are you you know um in terms of actually russia's actions unit you know creating unity rather than um the opposite rather than than undermining unity which is obviously what what moscow wants to do Yes, I think you can interpret Moscow's actions in um, in two ways, really. I mean, one is, yeah, that they would expect uh, European resolve to collapse and some countries go back uh, asking for gas. Um, and some are doing so. I mean, Hungary has its own bilateral gas contract and um, I think Hungary's energy prices will be different uh, the coming winter. But... But on the other hand, of course, um, you could also read it in a different way. If, if Moscow understands that Europe is going to give up on Russian energy, 
it's trying to phase out both Russian oil and gas, then, of course, why should Moscow make it easy for us? It is in their incentive to make it as painful for us as possible. Um, that is, um, you know, that's what you would expect in, in that situation. But in any case, I think, yes, either way, that, that train has, has now left the station, namely the train of uh, Russia being uh, the most important energy supplier to Europe. I think that lesson has been learned in Europe that this was not a wise policy and you should diversify supplies, you should uh, take a different view on, on these matters. And regardless of what happens, I don't think that will, that will be reversed. Okay, uh, thanks very much. Now, the other question I'd like to ask uh, is about the situation in Ukraine itself, uh, and specifically in parts of southern Ukraine and the Donbass, where Russia is widely seen as preparing to stage votes um, aimed at bringing those regions, at least in Moscow's eyes, uh, into Russia. Um, I say in Moscow's eyes because Kiev and the West, uh, of course, say that these votes or referendums, whatever term may be used, uh, will be a sham if they are held, uh, in part because few people in these regions actually want to join Russia, um, the country that's been bombing them and attacking them. Uh, but meanwhile, these, these plans, I mean, we've heard a lot about them for months now, actually. Um, they seem to have been delayed repeatedly in recent months, uh, plans for a vote or votes. Um, and Russia does not even hold all the territory that it apparently wants uh, to claim for its own. Um, it doesn't hold all of uh, the Donetsk region, Kherson region, or the Zaporizhia region by any by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Kadri, uh, we talked about how important the coming months may be um, in terms of EU solidarity, although you say uh, you know, as we as we discussed, um, it's it, you know there there may not be a huge threat, um, but but how important do you think uh, the coming months may be in terms of the war itself, um, particularly the situation in eastern and southern Ukraine? Well, that you should rather ask from some military experts, and they will give you a lengthy and and well informed answer. But I think. These are going to be important times. I mean, what we have seen over the recent days, um, Ukraine has started taking back some territory it had lost a long time ago in Kherson Oblast, uh, elsewhere in the south. And it's, um, it's extremely important to see where it goes. I mean, is, is that... The great counteroffensive some people have been expecting to happen at around that time, late August, September. Um, is Ukraine capable of taking back a huge chunk of territory such as Kherson? Should that happen? I think that will definitely affect Russia's plans in, in a major way. And the whole war might enter a new phase uh, entirely. Um, or or is it something different? So, I mean, I, it's hard for me to see to say what is it, what exactly it is that we are seeing happening on on the front lines right now. But I 
I'm pretty sure that uh, whatever it is, it it matters. And I think also in in terms of Russia and and referendums, um, the fact they have postponed them uh, could talk about administrative capacity or the lack of it, uh, but they are just not ready to uh, to, to really even uh, organize a, a sham referendum in in some semi-respectful manner. Or it could be that they are not sure that their hold um, over the territories is firm enough, uh, that the result could be some kind of embarrassment uh, for Moscow. I think they, they, I don't know to what extent they would care about it. I mean, I, I think in 2014 they did. I um, I've tried to understand the decision-making process in 2014 as concerns annexation of Crimea. I think there were several points of, of go ahead. Uh, the Kremlin started preparing ground in late 2014 uh, but that was a long-term plan. They thought that maybe they need it in 2015 if Yanukovych loses the election that was due in 2015. Uh, then, of course, plans were sort of uh, dusted off, uh, made more urgent. Then I think the go-ahead was actually given probably, yes, on 22nd of, of February. Um, but then my impression was that the Kremlin actually waited for the um, referendum result before sort of announcing the, the actual annexation. Uh, had the result been somewhat more ambivalent or, or, I don't know, maybe they would have done something differently. Hard to say now, maybe one day from the archives we know, but sort of um, desire to make it look like convincing people's choice at the time was was there. And I don't think they are entirely careless or entirely... I think it, it still matters to them how, how these referendums play out once they uh, do it. So that could be the cause for uh, postponement. And of course, I mean, um, another... Another big question here is the, the overall course of the war and, and any end goals. Because ever since Russia left the surroundings of Kiev that they couldn't take uh, in, in early late winter, early spring, the aim of that war for Russia has been an open question. Plan A was clearly unrealistic and plan B uh, has really been unclear. And I I think, yet again, we do not know for certain, but there is probably quite a lot of fluidity in, in how the Kremlin thinks about these things. Uh, referendums, however, would uh, make it a must for the Kremlin to take those territories and keep those territories. Uh, not having a referendum yet gives them somewhat more flexibility. So that could be among the considerations as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, um, we had Lavrov, the foreign minister, uh, Russian foreign minister saying, 
some point several weeks ago that you know the geography has changed um, and he made clear that that Russia wants to control Kherson and Zaporizhia regions uh, in their entirety you know along with the Donbass but as you as you say uh, very rightly I think you know to actually hold these votes um, would would make that a must for the Kremlin uh, would make their eventual control over them a must so that's that sets up a big challenge, especially given the fact that, you know, popular support is probably actually very low and they do not hold um, hold the territories in their entirety uh, physically. So so those are two big challenges. And, and as you say about the, the the coming months, yes, very hard to say uh, what's going to happen. And, you know, but but it does seem like. Uh, Two possibilities are this is this may be um, kind of obvious, but two possibilities are some development that could create a, a fairly big change in the situation, or um, no big change and just kind of uh, things dragging dragging on as 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 they sort of have been. Um, I mean, obviously, to tell someone in the front line that that's what's happening is not is not right, but. Um, but the war in general kind of dragging, dragging on uh, with little, uh, w- without large territorial gains on either side. Um, okay, we're getting a little short on time, but let's take a few questions from listeners, uh, if there are any. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, um, you can hit the button in Twitter spaces to request to speak, or you can send a DM or post your question as a reply to the tweet pinned in this Twitter space. So I'll, just give, I'll give it a few more moments. We welcome... Questions, uh, if if any are forthcoming. Hi, uh, William. You can ask your question. Uh, William, did you want to ask a question? Oh, sorry, my mic was uh, muted. Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the Gorbachev uh, part of your your program. I've noticed in the West we've expressed a lot of admiration for him. A lot of people saw him as this very progressive reformer, but a lot of my friends in the Baltics and Georgia have a completely different memory of him. And I just wonder, as we look forward into the Russia after Putin, people look to people like Navalny, but he also has a history similar to Gorbachev, the West praising him, but people in the East being more suspect due to his stance on things like the war in Georgia and other things he's done in the past. Do we in the West just have such a low bar for what is a progressive politics in Russia that we don't see this? Or is there something that the Eastern Europeans are kind of over-worried about? Well, I think when it comes to memory of Gorbachev, I think Eastern Europe has simply different experiences. And this is reflected in in different attitudes. Um, For the West, Gorbachev really... uh, symbolizes end of the Cold War, unification of Germany, um, reduction of nuclear arsenals, uh, etc. Eastern Europe, and especially I think the Baltic states, still remember that Gorbachev was not willing to let the Baltic states go. Uh, He tried to resist it while it could be done um, using the means he deemed acceptable. And that, of course, so as the memory in, in, in places, especially 
Lithuania, where uh, 13 people died around the TV tower. And that is still a traumatic uh, memory. But to be honest, over time, I do not think that that these things will uh, will matter. I I think Western Europe will have more understanding towards Eastern perspectives. I I can see it already happening. Uh, people mingle, people talk. Uh, East Europeans are very good in explaining values and various events uh, to their peers in the West. So. What I have actually seen in a big picture, I think European take on history has actually become much more unified over the past decades than than was the case earlier. And likewise, I actually think that the Baltic states will probably revise their assessment of Gorbachev. I mean, right now, to, to demand that a leader of a country happily letting his country fall apart I mean that's too much to ask from from anyone and I think you know Kobachev deserves respect for not resisting it from more violence um, yes it's it's regrettable that that people died also under his rule and I mean some of his bloodsheds he probably ordered. Um, he he has said that he didn't know about violence in Vilnius, but Baku was clearly sanctioned by him. Uh, but even so, I mean, by the standards of what has happened later, any violence Gorbachev used was, was really small, and he could have done otherwise. So I think in that sense, he deserves respect that his that human decency was all the time stronger from political incentives to crush rebellions. So I have somewhat reassessed my 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 own view of him, looking at, at later um, Russian leaders. I think Lilia Shevtsova has written very precisely somewhere that you know, Gorbachev uh, let go of monopolistic rule in Russia. That is something that has sort of been historically a feature of Russian politics. Gorbachev totally didn't care about it. Uh, he abolished Communist Party uh, power monopoly, whereas he didn't let go of communism. Uh, Lenin probably uh, was his idol until the end of his days. And Yeltsin then did away with communism, but he restored monopolistic rule in Russia. And Putin continued along these lines. So... I would I would assume that as time goes by and people adopt more balanced views towards the event of those events of those days, I I think Gorbachev's role and his human qualities will be reassessed and, and viewed in a more positive light than than right now. Thanks, Kadri. I, I really think that that last point um, about the uh, monopolistic rule um, is, is very important um, and a very good point. We had uh, my colleagues did a bunch of stories. And, and one thing I'll say to William, just as a plug for our FARL, we, we've had videos and, and text stories 
about um, the view kind of of Gorbachev, uh, you know, since his death from various parts of the former Soviet Union, um, and in, definitely including those kind of uh, the the views where that that you mentioned that your friends uh, share. But 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 one of the stories that focused on on the Russian response or the response in Russia uh, quoted somebody, and I can't remember who it is now, but they're saying for just for a moment or. For the for a time during Gorbachev's rule, it seemed that kind of the relationship between the individual and the state had changed or reversed. In other words, um, it was the individual who was becoming important. Um, but now we're back to very monopolistic state rule. Um, so that's one thing that that Gorbachev uh, achieved and that has now been essentially. Um, done away with um so uh if uh, i think we're really running pretty short on time but we could take a question or two or if Kadri wants to add anything uh yeah just maybe one thing um <clears throat> continuing on Gorbachev. i i think the experience of perestroika was um was also hugely important and not just reforms and what came of it but but the experience of of a process, and I'm, I mean, someone has written um, was it, uh, it was Fiona Hill who said that Putin doesn't understand his own country because he wasn't there when Perestroika was at full swing. I I think she has a point because Perestroika was revaluation of so many things. And somehow all axiomatic truths were um, about to be questioned again. And it was the time of incredible energy. And and yes, I, I think you're right that individuals started to matter in, in a different way. And individuals became also different. You know, what was possible for one wasn't possible for the other. And that wasn't, and that was in a different kind of way. It it wasn't, you know, communist party or any other hierarchy that there is a nomenclatura who can do more than than some others. But these were sort of powerful personalities that started to matter. In often they came from among uh, people of culture, theater directors, writers, uh, and they punched far above their weight, uh, you, could, you could see that. Um, and I always now flinch when I, when I read, you know, some Western take on Russia uh, and people saying, no, 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 these things couldn't be possible. During perestroika, many things could be possible. And there was no universal rule. I mean, certain things were possible for certain figures whose personal reputation made it possible. Um, so I think it was a very creatively chaotic time. If I were ever to write a book, I would want to write a book about perestroika. Sadly, the topic is far, uh, far bigger than I will ever manage. So I will, I will not do it. But I, uh, I would more than happily read if someone else uh, did write about it because it, it does matter, and I, I think it is underexplored. I think it is explored in. Um, sort of black and white context uh, that looks at its outcomes, but it doesn't 
really shed proper light on the impact the process itself had on people and relationships between people, a relationship between people and states uh, and the state and everything. Okay, thanks very much. Now I see one more question that I, that I can take from uh, someone who wrote in. Uh, this is from, but we need to keep it short, uh, an account called Truth and Social Justice. The question is, Gorbachev said one of his mistakes was the, quote, ethnic problem in the USSR. Um, and the questioner says, meaning most likely Russian oppression of non-Christian, non-Slavic minorities. What is your assessment? Will that eventually change? I have understood it a little bit differently. I, I think Gorbachev has said, yeah, that one of the things he underestimated was the ethnic question. Uh, but he meant um, the independence drive in, in places like uh, like the Baltic states, or you know, uh, ethnic conflicts as well. But but in general, Gorbachev was a believer in Marxism, and he really thought that the Soviet Union could stick together also voluntarily. Uh, that you know whatever ethnic separatism there would be uh, would be weaker than I don't know the forces that keep the Soviet Union together but for him probably still had to do with communist ideology and aspirations quite a lot um, I I also asked him I mean I have interviewed him uh, in 2001 and I was actually puzzled a little bit by the same question I asked why did why did he do Glasnost I mean perestroika or reforms that was evident that was necessary but Glasnost uh, to me it was obvious that when everyone was given right to say out aloud what they think then Obviously, the Baltic states would soon say that we wanted to be—we never wanted to be part of it in the first place—and and it's obvious that this would make Soviet Union incompatible with democracy. You know, then you would have to either keep Baltic states in by by force or let them go. They wouldn't be there voluntarily. And, and really, I don't think that any policy mistakes or I don't think there was anything that could have prevented that. It was it was clear from the start that if we could go, we would go uh, without another minute. Um, so <clears throat> and I asked Gorbachev, why? Why did you not see that your glasness would uh, bring about the fall of the Soviet Union? His answer was interesting, though, um, and in political context. He said that he needed the support of the people because otherwise the party leadership would have sidelined him the way they sidelined Khrushchev. And that's why he needed Glasnost. He needed uh, the process or whatever he was trying to do to be visible to the people and supported by the people. And that makes sense, even though it didn't work out in the end. Okay, thanks very much for that, Kadri, as well, uh, especially the, the personal experience. Uh, I, I never, I was in in uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia um, for years, but I did not actually interview Gorbachev. 
at any point, um, unfortunately. Um, now, uh, we really have run out of time, so I'm going to uh, wrap it up here. Kadri, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. All right, excellent uh, insights. And once again, I've been speaking to Kadri Leek, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFARL. As I mentioned, uh, this will be also published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFARL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, now, next Monday, uh, my colleague Mike Echo is scheduled to be the guest host, so don't forget to tune in. That's uh, Monday, September 12th, and please have a look uh, at my newsletter, The Week in Russia, this Friday. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions.